This message is brought to you by Cornerstone Gospel Church in Frankston, Australia. Galatians 2 verse 20, we sung about it just before. Galatians 2 verse 20, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now I'm going to move through this quickly. We've got a lot to go through today, but I really appreciate how Paul points out some things because there are some theological viewpoints that while very true in essence, are often taken way too far. And and when we talk about man's sinfulness, uh, for example, and our unworthiness, then we come across verses such as that. But Christ lives in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me, past tense, and gave himself for me. And so we would have to see that Paul is very strong on this point that Christ, his, his love for us, the Messiah's love for us, extends to before we were saved. Hallelujah. And, uh, and that is a wonderful thing, that God would love his creation. Amen. Well, we're looking at the nature of true Christianity and I'd encourage you to go back to uh, the previous lessons. We, we are recapping. We're not recapping. Um, and so we are beginning this week to look at a few sections on in the Spirit's power. All true believers should live in the power of the Holy Spirit. Zechariah 4 verse 6 says, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. When we return to what we've been looking at, and we think of the Mount of Transfiguration, the situation or the the event that took place there, when we think of Christ's resurrection... And we think, as we've been learning in recent weeks, the Christian person's salvation, that as we have placed faith in the Saviour, that by faith we are taken and we are crucified with Christ and raised again to a new life by immersion into Jesus Christ. Now, liberal theologians deny the physical resurrection but it is something that appears very early in Scripture. And so if you would uh, open to the book of Job, um, also put a finger in Hebrews chapter 11, or get ready to turn there. We're going to get through these quickly, and so if you can't keep up, at least just jot them down so that you have them to be able to look at or download the message afterwards. Job 14, this theme of resurrection in one of the oldest, if not the oldest book of the Bible. 
As water disappears from the sea and a river becomes parched and dried up, so man lies down and does not rise. Till the heavens are no more, they will not awake nor be roused from their sleep. So this is talking of death in a poetic manner. Oh, that you would hide me in the grave, that you would conceal me until your wrath is past. And so Job is saying that this is what happens. People, they are laid down in a tomb uh, until the, the heavens are no more. Then they are taken up again. And he's saying, I wish this time of affliction in my life would be like that. Lay me in the tomb and then raise me up. This is how strongly Job believed in a resurrection. That you would conceal me until, until your wrath is past. That you would appoint me a set time and remember me. If a man dies, shall he live again? It's a rhetorical question. The answer, according to the context, is yes. All the days of my hard service I will wait till my change comes. Hallelujah. This is a, there's a very definite untilness in this, isn't there? That, that Job is expecting that something is going to happen later on. I just wish I could get past this affliction. God, kill me now so that then you can remember me later and raise me up. Hebrews 11, 17 to 19. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested offered up Isaac and he who would have received the promise the promises offered up his only begotten son we we know the symbolism of this of whom it was said in Isaac or in your only begotten son your seed shall be called now I, I don't know if you understand what the author is saying he's saying but by faith Abraham was so obedient to the Lord that he was willing to to sacrifice the son from whom the lineage of faith was promised to to come from. Now, I don't know if you realize the importance of that, but when you kill something, it puts an end to its productivity. It's gone, that productivity. But not in this case. In Isaac shall your seed be called, verse 19, Concluding, this is what Abraham concluded, that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. So Abraham understood the truth of resurrection. That's what he believed. If this must be, because God has promised seed through this son, then God will raise him from the dead. That's faith. And that is a belief in the resurrection. And it also shows us that the author understood that the ram was a replacement in this situation that showed a kind of resurrection. Okay, verse 19, concluding that God was able to raise him up from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense, which did kind of happen because he was going to kill him but God provided a ram in replacement so he did 
receive him back from the dead in a figurative sense. But the author is really careful with his language to show that this is not the actual event. Daniel 12 verse 2 and verse 13. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. Daniel has an understanding of the resurrection. What some call the double resurrection, one of the lost and of the redeemed. Verse 13, but you go your way till the end, for you shall rest and will arise to your inheritance at the end of days. So Daniel is told that at the end of days, he will share in the events he's prophesied of. 1 Corinthians 15, 12 to 26. This is a long passage, maybe if you turn there. So we're seeing that this understanding of a physical resurrection is represented early in Scripture. You don't get any earlier than Job, as far as the writings of Scripture are concerned. Early in Scripture, and also regularly or frequently in Scripture. Verse 12, now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. Here is the confidence Paul has in the theology of resurrection. He says to those who are disputing a resurrection of the dead, he says, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Jesus has not arisen. That's a confident statement. If you say there's no resurrection, the Messiah has not resurrected either. And if Christ, if Messiah is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up if, in fact, the dead do not rise. It's very Straightforward logic, for if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen, and if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile, you are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. He means in that case. Verse 20, but now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep for since by man came death by man also came the resurrection of the dead this is the Christ man the God man Jesus for as in Adam all die even so in Christ all shall be made alive but each one in his own order Christ the first fruits afterwards those who are in Christ at his coming then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God, the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. So the argument is simple if we summarize it. If the Christian dead are not raised up, then Christ was not raised up. If Christ was not raised up, everything falls to the ground. But... Christ is raised from the dead, so everything Scripture speaks of is true. Now,
moving down to 1 Corinthians 15, 50 to 58. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. Now he tells us this mystery because it was something that was not clear until then. Now this mystery has become clear. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Some die, some don't, but we're all going to be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written. Then it's going to be brought to pass. Death is swallowed up in victory. Hallelujah. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because Jesus fulfilled all the law so that death had no hold over him anymore. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. This is transformation as well as resurrection. This is an historic situation that Paul speaks of. It's not in the never, never land of religious psychology or psychobabble or philosophy. At some moment in history, and remember we have said that history is comprised of time and location. There is going to be time and location when there will be believers on earth at that moment who are transformed into immortal. They are going to be transformed. They're corruptible bodies. And you and I know a bit about that corruption. Every morning you wake up and that corruption reminds you that we are mortal. But mortal will put on immortality. I've been reminded very strongly with this tooth extraction about mortality. It's a, it's a reminder. Regularly. The stitches were a reminder. Do you want me to go through the whole process with you? It's lovely. So, it's, you know, this is not, this is what is going to happen at some moment in history. Christ will come. The dead will be raised. Hallelujah. And the Christians living then will be changed in the twinkling of an eye. Now notice especially Verse 58 of 1 Corinthians 15. Therefore. And what do we say about therefore? We have to ask what it's there for. Therefore. And that is a response to what Paul has just said. Prior to that. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast. We know this is going to happen, he's saying. We know there's coming a time when the living will be transformed. The, the corruptible and the mortal is going to put on incorruption and immortality. The dead are going to be raised. We know that's coming. Therefore, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain 
in the Lord. Paul cites the resurrection of Christ past and the resurrection of believers future and that transformation into immortality. He cites that as being the call for a response in this present life as to how we live. Because Jesus was resurrected and raised uh, and has ascended and is going to return, believers are going to be taken up to him and resurrected out of the grace because this is true. Therefore, live in this way. So, this theology is not a pie-in-the-sky escapism. The matters of eternity and the matters of transformation and the matters of resurrection are not divorced from your present lifestyle that you know that we can live the life of Riley right now so that when that happens then oh thank goodness we'll be out of this decrepit place therefore my beloved brethren the same is found in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18. But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep or died, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. You know, it's an amazing thing, isn't it, when you go to a a funeral for a Christian as opposed to a funeral for a non-believer. So many times Suzanne and I have driven home from from those funerals of non-believers and even if they're aged people who, and you, you kind of think, well, they had a, a long life, but you come away with this sense of the hopelessness of that death, that nobody has any hope about it. But when you go to a believer's funeral and think recently of Jean's funeral, what a joy it was for us as believers to be able to celebrate her salvation and now her transformation. Lest you sorrow as those who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. So Paul makes a future event Reason enough to call for present behaviour. Comfort one another with these words. Now, this raises an important question, but it's not entirely essential question theologically. What happens between the Christian's death and his resurrection? And there are people who teach soul sleep, and it's from some of these ideas, because they kind of sound like You know, you're put in the grave and the soul goes to sleep and then it's resurrected. And like sleeping, that time just passes 
away so quickly and next thing you, you're going to be awake and, and, um, and so this comes under an area of theology called thanatology which is this study of death and what happens then um, you know we're going to be out of contact with history we're going to be out of contact with any sequence is the Christian between his death and resurrection nowhere uh, does he just disappear into a void and the answer is no that that doesn't happen and you know one of the examples we could speak of is Jesus talking of the rich man and Lazarus and then both dying and, and beyond the tomb what happens there um, but also in Luke 23 uh, verse 43 Jesus said to the dying thief on the cross he says to him assuredly I say to you today you will be with me in paradise now there are no commas in the original Greek text so this is brought about some dispute because um, Greek is not written like English and so uh, some would say Jesus is saying to him I say to you today you will be with me in paradise and praise the Lord you know because that's still a a confident statement Um, some other cults uh, take that way out of its context and they talk about paradise meaning a, and they take this really long extraction to say that paradise is the grave you will be with me in the grave and they talk about it from uh, you know the original meaning of paradise is a king's garden um, and so they say a garden is, is there's another word for it which is a plot of land and a, and a plot of land is a tomb and um, and so uh, this is what the JWs teach about, um, uh, about Christ's, about the thief on the cross, that he wasn't saying to him, you're, you're going to be saved. He was saying to him, you're going to the grave. So that's very hopeful, very hopeful, filled with hope and promise. You know? I'm assuring you, you're going to the grave. You know, it's 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 not that way. It's not that way. Now, the most commonly recognised translation of this is that he's saying to him, "I'm saying to you, today you'll be with me in paradise." Jan. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. You're going to die. Yeah. Be merciful to me. You're going to die. Yeah. And be buried. Yes. Yep. That's a good point, Jan. So, in fact, Jesus is saying to him, You're not going nowhere. What does he say to him? You're going to be with me. In paradise. Now, the the timing, um, you know, if people are going to split hairs over whether they, this soul sleep happens and all that kind of stuff, it doesn't matter. He's going to be with Jesus. However, that's not the 
the imperative or, or, or the suggestion of the text in its context, today you're going to be with me in paradise, implies the guy's going to be dead and he's going to be in a glorified state with Christ. Paul says the same thing in 2 Corinthians 5, 4 to 8, and he seems to say it with such finality. For we who are in this tent, I I love this word, this tabernacle is the word, and he's talking about the body here, your body. We who are in this physical body, groan, and some older folks say, Amen. (laughs) Being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, and what he means by that is vacated, right? We don't just want to be rid of this temple, this tent, but further clothed. And this would be a good spot for Paul, if he was writing in English, to put a semicolon right here and, and say, in other words, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. That our death, we, we, we're in this tent, we're groaning. This is a guy who's been whipped and beaten, stoned almost to death. He knows, his body is suffering for sure. You know, the, the nerves in his back would have been ripped open. This is a guy who would be living with pain day in, day out. And he would have been wishing to be unclothed from that pain. Right? And he says, but not just to be taken away from the pain, but to be further clothed in immortality. That death will be swallowed up by life. I just I love how Paul goes through this process. Now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has also given us the Spirit as a guarantee. Now this is something I want you to hang on to today, this, this idea. So we are always confident, knowing that while we're at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. While we're in this mortal body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight, in this mortal life. Right? We are confident, yes, well pleased rather, to be absent from the body, dead, and to be present with the Lord. Praise God. So the Bible presents only two states for the believer. We're here in this fleshly tent, or we've vacated this, meaning the body is dead and we're with the Lord. It is exactly the same thing that Jesus presents on the cross. The Christian is not presented at the time of death as being out of contact with sequence, with order, with history, with with being present somewhere, but of being in a changed state, a changed location. He hasn't gone to nowhere. Now, there are a great number of dead who crowd into our thinking at this point. This is not just a a theological question, it's a practical one. There are masses of Old Testament, New Testament believing dead. We think of our loved ones, you know people in your lifetime who who have died. Where are they? 
And we think about ourselves also. Each of us, I believe, would have the hope for Jesus to come back first. But we may die before he does. We may die before we leave this building today. Where will we be? Well, you know, the world's view is that the afterlife is either nothing or it's shrouded in unknowing and there are all different kinds of philosophies around it and, you know, most of it involves, uh, the, the, in the Western world, the, the strength of evolutionary teaching, this antichrist position. But remember, draw your minds back to the Mount of Transfiguration and who was there with Christ? Moses and Elijah. Were they there as spirits? They were there. There was something happening there because they were talking, holding a conversation. They were so real that Peter said, Let's build some tents. Let's build some tabernacles. You know? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Amen. Amen. Life and death representative in conversation. That's a really good point. So Luke twenty four, that's a really awesome point, bro. <coughs> now as they said these things, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them and said to them, Peace be to you, peace to you. But they were terrified and frightened and supposed they had seen a spirit collectively. And he said to them, Why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? Behold my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. The very prominent teaching in the JWs. When he said this, he showed them his hands and feet, but while they still did not believe, for joy he marveled uh, and marveled, he said to them, Have you any food here? So they gave him a piece of broiled fish and some honeycomb, and he took it and ate it in their presence. Now, Luke, remember, is a physician of the day and he's a very structured and organized uh, historian and researcher and he has put these things in because he's pointing out that Jesus was showing them in their skeptical, mystical beliefs that he was not a ghost. Because they had this idea, that, and it's represented in many a cartoon, when ghosts eat things, that it just goes straight through. They had this idea that he couldn't eat if he was a ghost. And why would you eat if you're a ghost? When Jesus was raised from the dead, they thought he was a spirit. They were not naturalists as such. They were supernaturalists. They believed in the supernatural. So, because they wouldn't have been surprised so much to see a spirit. What they were not prepared for was that the resurrected Jesus could appear before them and yet be in a physical form. They weren't prepared prepared for that. Handle me and see. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones 
as you see I have. And then the whole eating of the food. I'll skip ahead. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 8. We, we don't need to be afraid, beloved, to die. I've heard Christians, and, and Ray Comfort is, is, is um, remembered commonly for saying, you know, when people talk about death and they ask him, aren't you afraid of dying? And he says, I'm not afraid of death. It doesn't mean that I'm um, not afraid of the way in which I might die, you know. Nobody really enjoys pain. Uh, and so, you know, the idea of dying a painful death is not something that is appealing as such. But we don't need to be afraid of death. No doubt the central idea concerning the Christian dead is that they are with Christ. Hallelujah. And that's something we need to remember. To be absent from this body is to be with Christ. We are confident, yes, well pleased rather, to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Now, I looked up a couple of different versions for this. Um, The New American Standard said, We are of good courage, I say, and prefer, rather, to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. The King James of the 1900 says, We are confident, I say, and willing, rather, to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. The NCV says, So I say that we have courage. We really want to be away from this body and be at home with the Lord. Darby said, We are confident, I say, and pleased rather to be absent from the body. Young's literal translation says, We have courage and are well pleased to be away from the home of the body. The authorised version of 1873 says, we are confident, I say, and willing, rather, to be absent from the body. But perhaps that cheesy little translation, the NLT, picks it up so wonderfully and, and just gets the, the feeling of it so well. And so I've got it up here for you. Yes, we are fully confident and would rather be away from these earthly bodies, for then we will be at home with the Lord. Hallelujah. Forget that that said summary, because um, it's not, we're not finished. We're skipping through. We have a bit more to go. So, In a conscious, real state with Christ, the disciples are presented with this reality that he is physical in presence after the resurrection. Now, time is important. Jesus said to the thief, Today you'll be with me in paradise. The thief was there physically with Jesus. 
Now we know that Jesus died and oftentimes um, those who were crucified would be left to die a painful death but we know that the legs of the two thieves were broken and that they were taken down off the cross being the eve of the Passover um, because it was an unsightly thing to do mostly so that it didn't uh, you know, interfere and, and uh, uh, with the Jewish worship practices. And, you know, we, we don't exactly know the timing of their death, but the evening and the morning being the day in the Hebrew understanding, it is quite likely that as that evening and the morning uh, went by, that this man was dead actually in that time and he is with Christ in paradise. But sequence is a meaningful thing to that thief on the cross because there's a promise that he will be with Jesus. Time moves on and though the thief on the cross doesn't have his resurrected body, at that point there is a sequence happening and he will die and he will go to be with the Lord. There's a sequence happening for you and I There are promises that scripture has made for us. We will die and we will go to be with the Lord. And so there are two streams, two strands, I guess, in this space-time reality. One is seen and one is unseen. We need to keep these in mind, the seen. Remember our conclusion of the previous section, through death to resurrection. God tells us to live as though we've died. He tells us that we have been crucified with Christ, that we've been buried with Christ, we've been raised with him. Paul will later say in Ephesians that we've been presently now seated with him in heavenly places. But as we've mentioned, you're in Bradman Drive at the moment. But theologically speaking, Paul says, Paul is saying there's the seen and the unseen, and the unseen is just as real. It's a theological reality. And that's why we are to live by faith. He's not talking of some psychological motivation. Hebrews 11 declares, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for. I say to you, This day you will be with me in paradise. That man had hope. The evidence of things not seen, could he see that? Maybe he could get some glimpse in his mind's eye, but that's the faith is the evidence of things we can't see yet. Faith is rooted in things which have been such as Christ's death, his resurrection, his ascension. These are historical matters. Things that are, that's the stuff we see now, and things that will be. Our coming bodily resurrection, our death and our presence with the Lord. Hebrews 11, 13 to 16. These all died in faith not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. That's 
your real home, beloved. Here you're in a pilgrimage. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland and if, and truly if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. Isn't that exactly what happened as the children of Israel came out of Egypt? Oh, that we were back in Egypt with all those fine luxuries we had. Hang on, you were slaves. But now they desire a better. That is a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. This is not a description of passive faith. Now, remember that we have said that our faith is called to be an active passivity. We place our trust in the Lord, and yet we remain active knowing that this is the promise, the eternal promise, the future promise. Therefore, remain constant. Therefore, be immovable. We are the creatures, for sure. But in Christ, we're presented with an opportunity, a calling, to live (coughs) as his creature, day in, day out, and bring him glory between now and eternity through this choice that we have here in this present space-time historic world in which we're living in. Now, beloved, that is a cause to worship. That's a call for us to give God worship with our lives. That, Lord, because of these promises that you've made to me in Christ Jesus and evidence them by his death and resurrection and ascension and evidence them by when I put faith in Jesus, you put the unction of the Holy Spirit in my life. That should fill us with awe about God. We're to live by faith now. How does this translate? We're getting toward the end. You know, are we just going to seek some abstract religious experience? Um, Chase experiences or, or, you know, become ascetics? The ascetics were... uh, were an order of monks who would practice this self-abasement because they thought that somehow it would bring the, the pleasure of God upon their lives. And so this is not merely a religious idea. Look at 2 Corinthians 5, verses 4 to 5. For we who are in this tent groan. We, you know, touch your body, feel it. And that's, that's your tent. Do it in here. That's a really good spot. It helps you, helps you feel things just below the collarbone. That's a really good spot. For we who are in this tent groan being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed or untented, but further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. 
Now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has also given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So God draws two factors of reality together here. The factor of our being with Christ when we die, and the factor that at this present time, with equal certainty, if we have accepted Christ as Saviour, we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and that is the guarantee of what is to come. That's what he says. He has given us the Spirit. The the word guarantee there is like a deposit of assurance. In other words, when you, you know, I bought and sold a few second-hand cars in my time, and when you go and buy one, you see one and you like it, but maybe you don't have the cash there, and and so you give them a deposit. And the deposit is an assurance that you're going to come back and follow through with your word and pay for that vehicle. And so the Holy Spirit is God's security. He's God's assurance to you. His indwelling of your lives is God's assurance of the future transformation you're going to experience. Hallelujah. So right now, the Lord is here in you, with you, with me. And right now, Paul says, we are seated in a heavenly place. Right now, we are in Christ. Right now, we are raised from the dead. Right now, we've been made alive. Hallelujah. Hebrews 12, 22 to 24. But you... And he's speaking of those, you know, this is being written to Jewish believers. But all believers inherit this. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of, the, of, uh, of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. This is now. You are. You have come to. This that we're going to see upon our death is now a present reality, theologically speaking. God ties us in right now, at this present time, to the reality of those who are already in that other state. To an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly of the church. We sang this this morning again. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, meaning before I've died, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. What a, 
What a beautiful verse. The verse falls into three different positions, doesn't it? I have been crucified with Christ. You can put a break in there. You, you know, if you type this verse into you into a computer, you can put a break there and make that a statement. I have been. Underline and bold the have been. It's accomplished. It's done. By faith in Christ, that's what has happened. I have been crucified with Christ. Then you can go into the present tense in this next section. It's no longer. It is now, presently, no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me in the present and ongoing tense. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This is the actions I commit to. So I was crucified with Christ and now I'm living, but it's not me. Christ is living in me. Therefore, the life I'm now living in this body, I live by faith in that very Son of God. Hallelujah. Two streams of thought. The present reality, the Christian dead already with Christ and the future promise. There's a word called mysticism and it usually applies to Eastern, um, Eastern, Eastern philosophies, mystical philosophies. But this is an element of, of Christian mysticism. Now, please don't go, oh, he said he's called Christianity mystical, you know. But it's an element of it in that these are things that we can't comprehend. You know, I had this discussion with someone the other day, with my boss, in fact, and said to him, I can't be in two places at one time. I can either do that or do this. You know, you tell me. And so, but the Christian theology teaches that you and I have been crucified with Christ and are now resurrected into eternity and seated with him and that it is because of that that we are to live this life now constant and living in faith and yet we look ahead to that transformation as well. Now, I don't know about you, but that's a bit of a, you know, when you start thinking about that, how can you, how can you speak of this in these terms that the scripture speaks of it, it's because it is a reality that we can't yet understand. But we accept it by faith. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. The life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God. We're almost done. So I said that Christianity is, or really that should say this is an element of true Christian mysticism. I know I'm going to get hung for saying that. But in this sense of this present reality is also accompanied by a present reality that we can't see yet. It's the unseen 
Paul was so confident of it that he spoke about it as if he saw it and was seeing it. Well, in the the other form of forms of mysticism of what we saw come about in the you know sixties, seventies, and eighties. Some of us are not old enough to remember back then, but you know that it really arose out of the sixties, seventies, and eighties. Um, you know this rise of Eastern mysticism, really strongly promoted by uh, the Beatles, um, who went over to see. Uh, the Bhagwan or, or uh, Raj, uh, whatever his name was, um, and learned transcendental meditation over in India and, and all these kinds of things. And they promoted this Eastern mysticism uh, that Dave Hunt put out a fantastic series about, I um, uh, can't remember the name of it right now, a wonderful series that, that combats that kind of teaching because it has been embraced that Eastern mysticism has been embraced into a lot of the church from that time. And an example of this might be um, the, the teachings of Shiva, for example, uh, in Eastern mysticism. Now, in all these forms of mystical belief, there is a loss of personality in it. In Hinduism, you are endeavouring to become united with the universe and so, you know, through processes of reincarnation, over time perfecting yourself over millennia of lives, so that you come to a place where you reach nirvana and you cease to exist in any known form because you've achieved oneness with the universe. Now, that is a loss of personality in that. And you will see when people get involved in mystical cults that there is a real loss in the present time to their personality. And we, we've often spoken with them out on the street and, and you know even before they start getting into the conversation because there's kind of a, a vagueness to the look that they have and there's this unwillingness to be tied down to things in their conversation. And so if you think of the story of Shiva, one of the Hindu manifestations of the term called the everything. Now, um, don't try to think about that too much. But Shiva was a god, a deity of some form, who loved a mortal woman, and when he embraced her, they merged into one. And if you look at images of Shiva, you'll see an extremely female face and a masculine body. They're always like a rippling dude, you know, looks like a superhero. Forearms, and forearms, not forearms, four arms, and neuter in in gender. And so there is a, a loss of personality. And so he put his arms around her in his love and she disappeared into him and he became neuter. This is, an, this is Eastern mysticism. It's not grounded um, in sound theology in any way. It's grounded in the loss 
of personality in the individual. This is part of the mystical side of some forms of the ascetic Christian sects, the ones such as I mentioned before, these monks who would go and they would practice forms of self-abasement and punishing themselves and beating themselves and all this kind of thing so that they could rid themselves of themselves and somehow find the pleasure of God in that. There's a loss of who they are, but not so in Christianity. Christian mysticism is a communion with Christ. The mystical element of that is that you and I come into a union with him that then allows Christ himself to bring forth fruit in your life. How many of you remember back to when you first became a believer and and you know something happened because I just was overwhelmed with love for this person that before I'd hated or or I, I had been so filled with, with rage all the time and peace came into my heart, whatever it is. It didn't come from nowhere, but it didn't come from you. Because what you were producing before were the fruits of the flesh, the works of the flesh being manifest in rage and anger and anxiety and and lust and whatever it might be. But once you come into union with Christ, his fruit is manifested in your life and that is a mystical thing. It's the work of Christ in your life. And so when we talk about this true Christian Mysticism, we're not talking about mystical in an Eastern sense. There's no loss of personality. When you, when you see the writings of Scripture and you read of the disciples, you know, so many people say, oh, I really identify with Peter, you know, and you, we all know why they identify with Peter. And, you know, he had such a big mouth. He spoke before he thought. All these kinds of things, you know, that they identify with Peter. But that's because the reason they can identify with him is because the scripture has not hidden his personality from us. His union with Christ has not hidden and and just vaporized his personality. This is not simply an idea or a philosophy, it is the Messiah who was seen after the resurrection, seen by Stephen, seen by Paul, seen by all the disciples on one occasion, seen by John, seen by hundreds of people on another occasion. This is the reality of the resurrected Saviour. He who is the church's bridegroom. The church is always spoken of in the feminine Gender as the bride of Christ. Likewise, Romans 6 verse 11, you also, likewise reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. It is alive unto God, what? Through Jesus. Now Romans 5 through seven, those chapters are a fantastic passage for you to look at the whole process of sanctification. 
but throughout that you will see that your sanctification as a believer is tied into this position of being in Christ, that it is through Christ. Romans 5.1, Therefore being justified, that's past, by faith we have peace with God that's present through our Lord Jesus Christ. O wretched man that I am, Romans 7, 24 to 25, who shall deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. Romans 8, 37 presents us with this, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. Our union with Jesus is not simply an idea. It's, it's not just some pie-in-the-sky idea. The reality is that we are his bride right now. And the reality is that if you die right now, you will be absent from this body and in his presence. Hallelujah. He promises the Christian who walks in the Spirit and he's given the Spirit to us as a guarantee of what is to come. He promises that for the believer who walks in the Spirit, his fruit will be manifested in your life. You're not the one manifesting it. You're not the one doing the work. He produces that fruit in your life. Hallelujah. That is the power of the crucified, risen and glorified Christ that he can produce his fruit in your life now. Amen? Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. That should encourage us. Next time you put a deposit down, just think of that as your guarantee that you're returning, that you're going to pay in full. The Holy Spirit has been given to you as a guarantee of that future promise. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Praise God. Our Father, we thank you and we praise you this morning. Thank you for the love that you've shown us in Jesus. Thank you, Lord God, for the grace you've bestowed upon us. Thank you, Lord, for this union you've formed in our lives, bringing it into reality, Lord, by the indwelling of your Holy Spirit. That by that indwelling, Lord, we might know the promise of your love in reality and the promise of your future fulfillment of all that you've declared. We praise you and we love you in Christ's mighty name. Amen. Praise the Lord. Thank you for listening to this message. You're welcome to duplicate this message in its entirety for non-profit purposes. For more information and resources, visit cgc.org.au.